Hello and welcome to the Europe Desk. My name is Alastair Somerville with the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University, now coming to you from my apartment in Washington, DC. Georgetown has transitioned to a virtual learning environment for the rest of the semester, so the Europe Desk is going remote too, in the interests of social distancing in these strange times. Never fear, we'll do our best to keep up with our regular episodes in the weeks to come. Please stay in touch with us and send feedback to theeuropedesk at gmail.com. Before the coronavirus outbreak, or at least before it became the defining issue of our times, I sat down with Brent Goff, chief anchor at Deutsche Welle News and host of The Day. Deutsche Welle is Germany's international broadcaster, a bit like its US equivalent Voice of America. It produces multimedia content in 30 languages, reaching over 197 million people worldwide each week. This episode is part of our partnership with the German Marshall Fund, and later this season, we'll bring you an interview with a European journalist based in the US. Brent dialed in from Berlin to speak about his career, and Brent himself was a student at the BMW Center, Deutsche Welle's approach to reporting on international news stories, and his role as a TV journalist in the era of social media and the 24-hour news cycle. Here's my conversation with Brent Goff. Brent, if you could tell us a bit about how you sort of got your start in, in, in journalism and how you went from, I believe, first reporting on, on local issues um, in the U.S. through to the role that you have now covering all of the big um, international stories. You know, I took what was probably at the beginning a very traditional path um, I, when I graduated from college. Uh, I worked as a local reporter and as a local anchor um, in Missouri. And then I worked in North Carolina where I grew up. And I, I could have stayed in the States and maybe, you know, made it to the networks. And But there, again, you would still be doing national news. And I knew I wanted to at least have a stint overseas reporting. And so um, that's when I went to Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And I, I also I, I got a Fulbright Fellowship to Germany. And so that that took me um, overseas, if you will. And after uh, Georgetown, after I finished my master's, you know, I'd also been working part time at CNN. They said, you know, why don't you go to Berlin um, to the bureau there? We need a producer and a package um, reporter. And so that's what I did. And it was the 10th anniversary of the fall of the wall. And, um, you know, things developed from there. And. Uh, they closed the bureau um, about a year after that, and I was I was still here. And that's when um, DW offered me a position. And so I, then I thought, okay, well, I don't want to go back to the stage yet. I'll, I'll see what this is like. And you know, as many things in life um, turn out to be, um, you know, one year became two, two became five, and now it's been twenty years that I've been in Europe. And how did you make the transition then from the production side to the presenting side and the role that you're that you're in now? You know, being very much in front of the camera. Well, how did how did that transition go? And, and, and was that was that a tricky one um, as a, as a journalist, or is that something that you you really enjoyed doing? Well, well, I was you know I was um, on camera as a local reporter in, in the U.S. So that's how I started. And when I went to CNN, when I you know, did the, the part-time job during graduate school. That's when I went off camera. And um, 
I had hoped to go back to being at least um, an on-camera reporter um, after grad school, and that's what happened. I mean, I think it it obviously helped me that when I was at CNN that that I had you know that I had several years of on-camera experience. Um, it, it's much much more difficult to get a reporting job on camera, especially at that level, if you haven't worked in front of the camera before. Um, but I I had done that, and you know, that helped. And Plus, when I did my Fulbright, um, I was in Hamburg. I worked with the Tagus team mm-hmm. part of that time. And that was um, that was not on camera. That, that was producing. But that was you know a wealth of experience that very few people could bring to the table at CNN or even at DW. Um, and so that was something good, even though I, I was an on-camera journalist. That experience off-camera turned out to be um, pretty valuable. I mean, the moderator of the Tagus team at the time was Ulrich Dickert. He was also, he, he was a former Fulbrighter. That's how I actually got into the Tagus team um, redaction was because he and I were both Fulbrighters. And, you know, he let me do whatever I wanted to do, um, work on whatever, or, you know, write for him or, or work on stories for him. I mean, it was incredible um, access. And so, you know, I just, I, I gained a lot of, I was able to soak up a, just a lot of, um, I guess, institutional wisdom, if you will, mm. um, by working in there that, that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had um, you know, been, I don't know, been a field producer for NBC or ABC or something like that. And how does the sort of TV work compare with the work of print journalists? How do you see your work Kind of complementing the work of print journalists, and, and what do you see as being the, the the main differences in the the work that you're trying to do? Well, you know, there's always been this there's always been this rivalry between print and 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 television and broadcast. Uh, print journalists, um, you know, used to there used to be this, this stereotype of the print journalists were the were the real journalists. They were the substantive reporters, and the TV reporters were you know superficial and um, just you know, we skimmed the surface, and and that's all we reported. And it's true to um, an extent. I mean, television or even online um, now, if you're talking about social media, is only gives you what you need, the bare bones of a story. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want the background, if you if you really want to get into the meat of the story, you know, you still go to um, the newspapers or online publications. But in terms of being a reporter, you still ask the same questions. I mean, you know, the the toolkit that you have in your head when you're putting a story together is is the same. It's just what what is frustrating sometimes is that you know you have to really streamline the story to make it fit into the medium that you're working in. Um, and it's a skill. It's a it's a talent. Um, and it it takes a lot of practice to be able to do that. Um, and I worked with some former print journalists in my newsroom who, and, and there are two that I can think of when, when they came on board, they had, they were, they you could just tell that they, you know, they didn't give much credibility to the newsroom that they were working in because of the television. But now that they've been there for several years, it's completely different um, because distilling information and into something that is uh, that people who are listening passively 
can understand and still getting the facts right, um, that's, it's, it's an important job and it's an incredibly difficult job. Um, and it's a dangerous job because you are, you know, you're filtering out so much information just to get to the bare bones that there's always this danger that you're going to leave out um, information that's really crucial to the story. So you're walking, you know, a tightrope all the time. Um, but, you know, you don't think about that when you've done it for a while. It just it comes natural. But it's it's difficult. I mean, for someone who's just who's just starting when they see what we do, um, I can I understand when they um, you know, they're overwhelmed by it because it seems like we it seems like we're distilling a lot and making decisions about what to leave in and what to leave out um, in real time very quickly. And that's that's something that um, you know, the average person doesn't have to do. And you mentioned sort of distilling things down and then the role of social media and all of this. And I know that you're very active on social media um, you know, amplifying the stories that you're covering at Deutsche Welle. Yeah. Does social media sort of fundamentally affected the way that you do your work or do you see it more as um, a way to reach new audiences, sometimes gauge in a productive conversation or two with your viewers and people who are interested in your work? Is it, is it a fundamental shift or is it one mostly of... Um, how you actually get your work out there to a to as broad an audience as possible well i mean i think for for us it's it's a way to get a completely new audience because before before the internet if you were in television you just had that medium mm-hmm. uh, to, to draw through and now what we have is we we have television still but we also have streaming we have social media and you know these all of these media have, um, you know, to some extent, their own separate uh, groups or audiences that, that you can you know, tr- try to curate and develop, and, and, and you know th- that's what we do. So it, it is it is about growing your audience, um, but it doesn't sh- <clears throat> it doesn't change what we do in terms of substance. Um, it does impact though the way you present information um, because on social media, for example, people, the, the attention spans are even shorter than they are for someone watching television, believe it or not. So it's, there's this, there's this constant push to um, make things you know, shorter and shorter and shorter um, so that people don't click away. Um, so it's That's, that, that I guess that has changed, but, but I but for us it, it's just been you know an extra way to reach another audience, and I mean that's a good thing. Um, what we see, and and what I see, not just in my work, but what I see generally in society, is the you know the silo effect um, that social media has helped mm-hmm. create, and is that people aren't connecting with each other. It, I mean, if they, it, you know, people who have different opinions or, or different backgrounds or, you know, you're in these echo chambers and that's, 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 that's bad for people who, you know, jobs like me. I mean, we want people to um, be in the marketplace of ideas, not be inside an echo chamber. Um, but we're, we're confronted with that all the time now. And that's something that we didn't have to deal with um, before social media rose. 
And when you're looking at your international audience, and after all, Deutsche Welle's role is to to reach as wide an international audience as possible. Do you see that playing out differently in in different parts of the world where you have viewers and people who engage with your content? Is it is is the social media effect? Um, the same everywhere across the audiences that you reach, or do you notice it more strongly in in some parts of the world over over others? That's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, you know what the shows that I anchor are are produced mainly for North America, and 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 you know my program the day is is rebroadcast on PBS. So the 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 types of people who would watch the PBS NewsHour, for example, they watch um, my show in BBC America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're the people that w- were, I guess, were producing and, and writing for. But the the social media aspect of that, um, social, yeah, social media in the United States is, it's, it's like a battlefield of, of, um, polarized, angry, um, abuse, I mean, you, you name it, uh, people who are throwing their opinions at you. I mean, I, I'm constantly, constantly shocked at what people say to each other on social media. Um, and we see that all the time in the United States. I don't see that as pronounced um, in Asia, for example, or in Australia. We have a, a large audience in Australia. Um, I, I don't see that being the case in India. We don't. I mean, it's different in India, but the United States really is an, a very social media is is a an aggressive and a very abrasive place to be. Um, and we're reminded of that all the time. But I will tell you something that I think is encouraging. Um, we, I, we, I rarely respond to messages that are you know, that are hateful or where people are, are just, you know, being abusive or using language that, um, you know, that they, they would never say in front of their mother. Um, <laughs> but, but there are, uh, there've been a few times when they've, you know, the, our PR office has, has sent me something and I saw it and I, and it caught my attention and I've responded to the person who's written this. And, you know, I've always said, you know, thank you for writing and thank you for the feedback. I was wondering if you could help me understand why you wrote this um and every time i've done that every time that person has responded with an apology mm-hmm. and most of them admit that they were angry about a story they've seen in the heat of the moment they had written something and then hit send or tweet and um they shouldn't have done that and they thank me for um responding so this this um i guess this lack of civility uh, that we see all the time is people need to be sometimes you know they need to have someone knock on the window and say you know remember there's a person over here and when you are thinking about the issues to cover do you see a particular responsibility given your base in berlin to try and cover European issues or German specific issues in a particular way for these audiences in North America because you're well placed to do so with with, with your base being in in Berlin 
or do you see your responsibility as a much more global one to cover the the biggest stories kind of regardless of where in the world they're taking place well we we are an international um, news network and um, we we do world news but with a focus on Europe mm-hmm. I mean, we, and we say that you know always you know we are based in Berlin we do have a focus on on Germany European Union and we report on that but um, we don't you know we don't um, change the definition of news warriors um, in order to, you know, to have, make sure that we have a European story on the show every day we, we, we don't do that um, we cover the news as it is what we do that maybe you wouldn't get in the United States is you know we we are um, a a network that is heavy on European stories. I mean, we cover the European Union um, extensively. We cover Brexit extensively. Um, we cover, you know, data protection mm-hmm. story extensively because it's a it's a huge huge issue here, and um, we cover you know antitrust stories um, also extensively because you know it's it's a story that impacts the United States um, more and more. So. Those things get a lot of attention, and th- probably that you wouldn't see in the United States. But I, I will tell you what I do think we we, we have a, a unique position here at DW, and I'm really I feel very fortunate to have. As, you know, when I look at what's happening in the United States in journalism, um, I, I was there over Christmas, um, and I was watching the evening news, and you know the the, the bushfires in Australia. Mm-hmm. were raging and I was shocked at how little reporting was offered. I mean there were some evenings when there was maybe 15 or 20 seconds of the evening news that w- that was dedicated to that and you know, they just showed a couple of pictures and that was it. Mm-hmm. And and I I knew that that was not the appropriate way. I mean the weight of the story was much greater. And at the same time they devoted Lots of um, time and to you know, stories about after Christmas sales or, <laughs> or con, you know consumer stories, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong when you deny the public you know, information that it needs um, to make you know important decisions at the ballot box, for example. Um, that, that's the problem. Um, the, the fact I think that we have so many climate change deniers mm-hmm. has something to do with the fact that w- journalists in the United States, particularly, um, have have for way too long considered you know, the climate change issue to be a back burner story, mm-hmm. and, and it's still a problem. It's still a problem. I, I, you know, I I I can I can imagine what the producers of those newscast in New York would have would have told me if I had sat down with them and asked, you know, why was your rundown like this? And I, and I know what they would have told me. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we don't have to um, deal with those parameters here. And I'll tell you, um, our audience in the States tells us that they're grateful for that all the time. I mean, I think the, the one biggest feedback we get from the U.S. is um, please don't stop giving us news because we can't get world news in the United States anymore. 
I mean, I hear that every day. I read that every day. Do you see, I know you mentioned climate change. Do you see that as being one of these issues where news outlets want to present both sides of an issue where there's a quite clear factual basis in favor of one side or the other? And that creates a problem whereby you present views that are not based in any sort of facts and evidence as being somehow equal um, or in balance with a set of views that are based on facts and evidence. Is that a problem that you see across the spectrum of issues? Or do you think climate change is kind of a unique issue in that regard? Um, I, I think that it's precisely that that you're describing is the, is the reason why uh, the the public awareness around the world has been so so slow to to to, to grow because we reporters have have for the, for a long time tried to treat both sides equally. But what you're you're dealing with then are these um you know you're they're like false equivalencies. You know you're a a climate change denier is someone who is denying facts and science and um that you know you're not obligated then when you're telling the story to give you know to give something that's not true the same amount of attention and time that you would give something that is true and to be able to say that um as a journalist and to be able to say that in in public uh, you know that's a that is a big leap 20 years ago uh, i don't know of anyone who would have even said what i just said would have um, said that in in public they would have maybe been booed off the stage um but that that's the reality that we're in and the united states i think is a place where you still find uh particularly local news where you still find this this just re reflex of reporting both sides of the story um even when one side is just is, is is not true is there a particular journalist either print or tv or, or, or a journalist in general whose work covering international issues and maybe europe in particular you admire somebody that you're following all the time making sure that you know what they're saying on an issue because you really respect their reporting or their insight. Is there, are there, is there a particular journalist that you really look to as, as, as you consume the news yourself? Um, yeah, there, there are several um, who, who for, you know, for many years, I, I, I've always gone to, to their work um, when I've been working on a story. And I'll tell you maybe the name of one or two, but the others... You know, I have to be careful. <laughs> you know, sometimes with the, the competition, but um, you know, I on my shows sometimes I have Quentin Peel, um, who is a, a British journalist. He's a veteran um, European mm -hmm. uh, affairs journalist, and he's based now um, in London at Chatham House. And he, he he has such a wealth of information about everything that has happened in Europe and also tr in transatlantic affairs, you know, since 19, I guess since, you know, since the early sixties. Um, and he, I mean, his whole, his whole professional life is, is about that. And now he has become 
almost like this this wise oracle or sage, if you will. Um, and he, it's it's almost an honor to be able to ask him about what's happening because you always you know you're always going to get value added content from him mm-hmm. because he's seen so much. Or you know, even when you're, even if it's about how the, the German Chancellor and the U.S. President get along, you know he he knows he can tell you about Billy Bruns, or he can he can tell you about um, you know what I don't know what Richard Nixon would have thought of, or what Lyndon Baines Johnson would have thought of the German Chancellor. It's amazing what he has seen and and what he's written about and that he that he is able to impart it now i mean he's been doing this what for like 50 years i mean he's just he's excellent and the person um, on television and i have to say this i mean she works for cnn is christian Amanpour. i worked with her um at cnn we covered the 10th anniversary of the wall mm-hmm. all the wall together and um you know, I, what i love about christian is that she does not suffer fools easily and um and rightly so. I mean, she is a, a no-nonsense, uh, you know, let's get to the point, and only the facts, please, reporter. And uh, I saw that, you know, when I started the scene, I saw that, you know, working with her, and it left a really, really strong impression on me, and um, I'm grateful for that. And she was here last year, last January, when um, Merkel received the Fulbright Award. Mm-hmm. For international understanding, you know, and I thought it was, was it she delivered the um, the Laudatio. What do we is that? Do we say that in English? I don't um, think so. No, I sort of. Say? It's not a commencement. It's kind of a I, the tribute speech. I oh, know not a tribute. That's like at a funeral. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting because in the program, I'm thinking that it was Laudatio. She delivered, or anyway, she did, she presented or she introduced Merkel. Oh, right. And. Um, and you know, I thought that was really appropriate because you know, what these two women, what they represent in their own right. But yeah, it's probably Christian and Quentin who are two people that um, I always know that when I read or when I um, listen to what you know they're reporting on, that um, I'm, there's going to be something there that's definitely extra value. Mm, super. And one final question. Do you have a favorite airline when you fly transatlantically and why? My favorite airline would be something supersonic that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, Bring back Concorde. <laughs> uh, really, tell me about it. Um, I, mean, I always fly with United because for years, and this is this was you know after nine eleven, there were no direct flights from Berlin to the United States. You had to go through Frankfurt before you could um, go to the U.S. And then United um, started a nonstop flight from Newark to. Berlin Tegel, and I've been with them ever since. So I would have to say, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's kind of you know the the wall of, of inertia that um, <laughs> makes you stay with them, uh, you know. But I think competition. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think competition in the skies is good, and we could do with a little more than what we have right now. Great, super, Brent. Thank you very much for for taking the time to talk to me. That was the Europe Desk. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Europe Desk and send any feedback to theeuropedesk at gmail.com. The podcast was produced by Simon Close and me, Alistair Somerville. Thanks to Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant for their help with this episode. Our music is by Sam Kizavat and Breakmaster Cylinder. Sarah Diebel is our designer. Charlie Fritz and Laura Rodriguez run our communications. Stay safe, wash your hands, and see you next time.